I'm Sean O'Sullivan of the 21st Amendment Brewery here, and this is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer. My guest is Mitch Steele of New Realm Brewing. He is here for a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. First, please visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com backslash allaboutbeer. We'll get into the conversation with Mitch Steele in just a moment. But first, this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com. Okay, let's get into it. A bit about my guest today. Mitch Steele is the brewmaster and co-founder of New Realm Brewing Company. He's been brewing beer professionally for over 34 years, studying brewing science at the University of California, Davis, and home brewing prior to becoming a professional brewer in 1988 in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mitch spent 14 years at Anheuser-Busch and 10 years running the brewing operations for Stone Brewing before relocating to Atlanta as a partner and to start New Realm Brewing Company opening in 2016. In 2012, Mitch authored the brewer's publication book, IPA Brewing Techniques, Recipes and the Evolution of India Pale Ale. Maybe some of you have heard of that beer style. And in 2014, the Brewers Association awarded Mitch with a prestigious Russell Shear Award for innovation in craft brewing. Welcome, Mitch. Thanks, Sean. Great to be here. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to have you too. I'm really excited to, about this conversation. You know, you and I have done collaboration brews over the years. We've run into each other in other countries drinking beer and, uh, and across the globe. And uh, you're also like, I think you're one of the most well-respected people in this industry. I mean, people really like you. Uh, wow. in your, they, like in your <laughs> they really like you and you're a swell person. Yes, I said swell. <laughs> so, so thanks again for being on the show. Um, uh, so your past with stone brewing, uh, you know, it's been well documented. I mean, I think stones put out, it put out a lot of, uh, videos and articles and blogs about you. Uh, I can remember watching those videos, uh, over the years. <laughs> But I, I'm really interested in where you are now with New Realm Brewing, you know, in Atlanta and 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 all that that came before uh, to get into that. 
before we get into the Wayback Machine and talk about your past brewing lives, of which there are many. <laughs> so so maybe you could just kind of like walk us through like when you left Stone and and how the whole New Realm project kind of came about. Yeah, for sure. I, I think this all kind of happened in 2016 and I was approached um, while I was at Stone uh, by a couple of people that that used to work sales and logistics and distribution management at Anheuser-Busch. And I did not know them. You know, I spent 14 years at Anheuser-Busch, but I, I, our paths never crossed. Uh, but they reached out to me and they asked me if I'd be interested in this project they were doing, which originally was going to be Asheville, North Carolina. And I had pretty much fallen in love with Asheville, North, North Carolina and through several trips there and was super excited about that. <laughs> Um, and you know, but my daughter was in high school. I said, no, I, I said, I'm not, I'm not leaving. I'm not going to pull my daughter out of high school and have her go through that, that teenage trauma. And, mm -hmm. you know, and they, they kept at it. They were persistent. And, um, eventually, uh, when they were talking to me, they said, what if you were to commute while your daughter's still in high school and then, and then, uh, move out? uh, to Asheville is what, it, what the plan was. And, uh, and I thought about it and I talked about it with Kathleen and, and, uh, my wife, Kathleen and our kids, and, uh, we decided to, to do it. And, you know, really for me, uh, you know, it wasn't that I was unhappy at stone. I was actually very happy at stone. I enjoyed working there, uh, tremendously, but, um, this was an opportunity to start something from ground zero. I thought the time was right. I thought the location, was right uh being in the southeast i thought there was room for growth there um and you know honestly on a personal level we were looking to try and get back to the east coast uh because we spent some time there as a family and we really enjoyed it so i ended up making that move um in 2016 and um you know we spent the first year and a half planning out the company and the brewery and all that fun stuff that goes in to the project before you actually get going on the project. Um, and we opened, uh, you know, we spent six or seven months building the brewery out and it turned out to be in Atlanta. And I, re I remember my <laughs> very first day on the job, um, uh, Carrie Falcone, who's our CEO, called me up and said, I found the building. And we had been trying to get this building in Asheville. And I thought, okay, here it comes. And he said, it's in Atlanta. And I'm like, Atlanta, I thought we were talking to Asheville. And he, he said, <laughs> well, I found this amazing building. I want you to hop on a plane, come out and take a look at it. And so I did. And you've seen our location in Atlanta yeah. and, and where it's at with the, with the belt line right behind it. And it's an amazing spot. And, uh, you know, it didn't take much to convince me that this was going to be something really, really neat. Yeah, I can remember actually the early part of that uh you were going i think you were going back and forth but we did a collaboration with matt from from firestone and you were like there was like a heated part of that where you were trying to like not necessarily heated but there was you were really embroiled in what's the name going to be and i think yes. i can remember like even throwing some names in the hat at the time like you know what about this what about this and uh <laughs> Yeah, that's absolutely true. That was the hardest thing. And Carrie and Bob, who were uh, the co-founders with me of this company, the three of us are very, very different people with different interests, different likes, different, you know, everything. And and so we couldn't agree on a name. And, you know, we had simple rule. If it had been used by another brewery, we weren't going to use it. If it had been used for a beer name, we weren't going to use it. 
Um, and, and we had a list that was, I, I swear to God, I still have the list. Um, you know, it's about a half inch of yellow legal pads, um, of names and, you know, it was, we, up until COVID, we like to say that that was the hardest thing we did as far as opening this company up and getting it going. Um, and it, and it was really difficult. We just weren't on the same page and it wasn't acrimonious or anything. You know, we had a one person can veto rule. And, you know, we all pulled the veto card frequently. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So what was that like building that brewery? I mean, you know, you know, you have your space. It's a it's a you know, it's a it's a it's this platform available to you right there. You know, uh, Canvas. Uh, what was what were you what were your what were your goals with that? Were you looking just to be were you hoping to grow to a regional brewery or a fairly big size brewery? Or are you just kind of keeping it local or what was the initial plan? Yeah, the initial plan was to be a um, regional, somewhat small regional brewery. Um, you know, we didn't want the brewery to be huge. We didn't want a production brewery, uh, but we wanted more than, than you know, like a 10-barrel brew pub operation. We wanted to be able to distribute beer. Um, and, the, and the original plan of the company was that we were going to <clears throat> build similarly sized breweries in different states in the Southeast, assuming that we were making enough money to do so. And, and then have this kind of um, uh, network of, of regional small, you know, 10,000 to 20,000 barrel a year breweries that we could manage all our production out of. Um, and that, that changed and, and, um, but, you know, the Atlanta brewery is, you know, capable of brewing 10,000 plus 15,000 barrels a year depending on the brand mix. So, you know, that was kind of the the initial plan for all of our locations was going to be something like Atlanta. And you have a second location. We have two other locations right now. And so um, <clears throat> we, we ended up uh, going to auction on the Green Flash Brewery in Virginia Beach. And this all came about because you know, when we started in Atlanta, we realized that if we were going to keep growing the way we were seeing our growth curve go, we were going to run out of capacity. And me being the planner, you know, long term, <laughs> you know, I'm like, guys, we got to start talking about a production brewery or another brewery or whatever the case is. And uh, when that brewery went up for auction, we did not initially have a business plan that included Virginia. Um, but you know, the, the Virginia beach brewery is, is about 10 miles from the North Carolina border and North Carolina was definitely in our business plan. So we talked about it. Um, and we decided to try and get that brewery when it got foreclosed on and shut down. And we did, um, and we got a great price on it, but you know, it, it changed the entire business plan once we got that, because that brewery has a hundred thousand barrels a year capacity in it. And so now what we're we're looking at doing is keeping Atlanta and, and doing a lot of beer out of Atlanta, uh, maximizing capacity in Virginia Beach, and then building small brew pubs, um, you know, in, in states where we may not have something. So uh, we took over a brew pub in uh, just north of downtown Charleston a couple of years ago, and uh, we just kind of slid right in and started running it. And uh, it's been a great spot for us. Uh, it's on Daniel Island in Charleston, and it's a one-person operation as far as the brewing goes. Uh, and, and Jeff is brewing there, doing a great job. So you're sending your beer from Atlanta up there as well, and so you're serving your your mainline beers and also experimenting around at the pub level. Yeah, he's got a lot of his own beers on tap, and you know, I, I you know, I don't, 
I don't tell him no on many things he wants to brew. So, <laughs> I, and that's the way I've always operated. You know, if it, it, I like to embrace the creativity of the team and, um, you know, I, I want to retain veto power, but I don't think I've ever vetoed anything at new realm that somebody wanted to do because I'm also very curious. And if they're doing something that I wouldn't do, I want to see how it turns out. You also use those vetoes up with naming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have like a, <laughs> I have like, a, I, I have a rule of thumb. I think I said this to Reagan uh, when I interviewed her from local um, that uh, if you make a beer at a brew pub and it doesn't turn out right, you just change the name and dry hop. it. That's like, <laughs> you can save a lot of beers that way. I think that, Boy, that you know, is, I, that's a good trick. Yeah. <laughs> do you think you're, do you think that you're uh, because when you were at stone, I mean, stone went through a massive, like expansion uh, project, big CapEx projects. Do you think that helped you out at all? Because they were in Berlin and they were also up in um, Richmond. Um, did that help you out at all? Yeah, it did for sure. Um, you know, the 10 years I was at Stone, we were always expanding. There were expansion projects going on every single year I was there. And managing those initially and then bringing on the staff to manage those projects uh, as we got bigger and my bandwidth got smaller, it was great, great experience. And I think it really helped me. Awesome. What do you, I mean, like what, what, what transferred over? Was it just like the, the, where to get material? Was it just the planning? Was it like, what did you learn from that experience of what not to do? I'm always curious about that because, you know, we built this big brewery in San Leandro and there's things I would have done differently uh, in hindsight especially since 2015, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I just kind of like curious if there was anything that you took away from that, you know, from the stone experience for your new project. Yeah. I think number one, um, uh, you know, just flow in a brewery because at stone, they had a great setup when I got there, but as, as we grew, you know, we started putting cellars, uh, and fermenting, uh, uh, fermenters all over. Right. And that created some issues. So I wanted to make sure that when we built out new realm, that the expansion, if there was going to be an expansion, it would not, detract from the original design and process flow in the brewery. And I think that was, that was really important. Also not waiting too long to get tanks was something that I, yeah. I really latched onto. Um, you know, if, if your capacity is going at a certain or your production's going at a certain trajectory and it's going to cross your capacity line within two years, you better be thinking about new tanks and, and, and that kind of thing. So from a timing standpoint and optimizing the timing of expanding, I think that helped. And then, you know, with the, uh, um, the Berlin and the, and the Richmond projects, which were building breweries from the ground up, um, I learned a lot about, you know, design and working with engineering firms and brewing firms that had their own engineering teams and, you know, brewing equipment firms rather. And, and, you know, just working with them and working together. And, you know, that's uh, always an interesting experience, especially, you know, when the, when the suppliers are German, you know, they, they have their <laughs> own way of doing things. And, and sometimes that doesn't really jive or match up with what you're doing as an American craft brewer. Oh, I know that story. I know that story. <laughs> you're, you're you're going to make a a beer with a with a bigger than fifteen Plato words. <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> exactly. That's absurd. That's funny. Hey, what if this is interesting? Because, uh, you know, I I for a number of years, I you know, I brewed at several uh, pub breweries, and then we st then we started the Twenty First Amendment. So I had this experience, and I was using you know with the recipe formulation. Um, 
you know, I was using one particular yeast. I was using the London ale strain a lot from my prior career. Then when I switched it up and started the 2-1-A, I started using American ale uh, as our house yeast. And so I'm curious, you're at Stone for, for, for a good while. And when you, when you look at recipe development at New Realm, did you just like, you know, tear the playbook up from, you know, what you learned at Stone and reinvent it? Did you, I mean, how did you do that? Because I think it's an opportunity to kind of like, almost like reinvent yourself uh, as a brewer. Yeah, uh, not not to that extent. I, you know, I certainly learned a tremendous amount uh, about brewing certain types of beer at Stone, and I took that with me. I, you know, I really liked what we did at Stone. And so, you know, in, at New Realm, we have a couple of beers that are very reminiscent of some of the beers I brewed at Stone. I, I, you know, the one rule I had for myself is I'm not going to copy it, you know, but if I use... Mm-hmm you know, this beer is an inspiration for a beer I want to make now, I would. Um, What New Realm gave me the opportunity to do, though, was brew a bunch of styles that I never would have gotten past Greg at Stone. And and so that was a lot of fun. You know, I mean, you know, one of the things I wanted to make was a really nice hoppy Pilsner. And, you know, Prima Pils from Victory was one of my favorite beers. It was always on tap in the Stone uh, Bistro in Escondido. And I fell in love with that beer and I wanted to make something like it. And, you know, Greg, um, you know, wanted us to focus on what Stone was known for, which I think it was a good thing at the time. Uh, But as a brewer, you know, wanting to do other beers, um, you know, I took that opportunity when I came to New Realm and I'm still enjoying that. We're brewing a little bit of everything at New Realm. And certainly we, we have a lot of focus on IPAs, but we're brewing a lot of lagers right now, too, which is really fun for me. Well, you have to innovate, you know, it's one of those things, especially at this, you know, day and age. I mean, maybe that was the case back in the day with, you know, when Greg was saying, no, we're not going to do that. Let's stay true to brand with our, you know, with our styles. But, you know, now it's like, you've got to do everything. So. Yeah. I mean, times change and you got to evolve with the times and, um, uh, you know, certainly we've, we've done that, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just been fun to be able to brew a Pilsner and a Munich Dunkel and a, uh, an Oktoberfest beer and, you know, those kind of beers as well as kettle sours and things like that. Do you think that the consumers in the Southeast um, are, and your other locations are responding to sort of these classic styles? I mean, you know, hazy IPAs are king uh, in a lot of ways. I know it's sort of shifting right now to clear or West Coast style IPAs, but do you think the consumers uh, interested in, uh, in uh, you know, a dunkel or uh, something else? Not in distribution. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I mean, that's been our experience with those kind of beers. Um our tap rooms are more all over the place as far as what people drink. And and there were uh, when we opened up the tap room and put in a restaurant in Virginia Beach, the Munich Dunkel did very well. Uh, you know, there were uh, you know, it's a very heavy military area. There's a lot of bases around around the brewery. And and so people who had been in the military and had served over in Germany uh, often came into our brewery and they they drank our Hefeweizen and they drank our Dunkel. Um you know, I think, uh, um, you know, when I got to Atlanta, it wasn't all IPA and, and, you know, like it was in California when I when I left California. And and so I looked at that as an opportunity to do some different things. But, you know, it's interesting. Distribution still it's what's selling. Right. And and it's still all about IPA, although we've had some pretty good success with a few loggers in the past year. So that's been encouraging. And, you know, it's nice to see in, in Atlanta right now, there's a, a number of breweries that are doing 
just focusing on classic styles and doing very well. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I love that. I love going to those breweries. I love drinking their beers and it's just, um, to me, it's, you know, it's, it's encouraging to see this because I think maybe the tide is turning a little bit and, and getting back into beer styles that a lot of craft brewers had just left behind. Yeah, that that's, that's, that's exciting to hear. You know, that was like kind of along the lines of my next question, which was, um, what is happening in the Southeast in terms of craft beer? Um, you know, is it, you know, what are you seeing down there? I mean, it's, is it different from any other part of the, of the country or is it unique in its own way or? Well, I think it's, it's different because it's a little bit newer. Um, you know, there's certainly, there were breweries in the Southeast, um, you know, since the early days of craft, but, you know, I look at what's happened in Atlanta as, is kind of a nice example. And when I got to Atlanta, I think there were you know, five to 10 breweries in the Atlanta metro area. And now there's like 50. I mean, it's, you know, and I think there's still room for more. Atlanta has somewhere around 6 million people in the population in the metro area. Um, there's room for more breweries. Um, I think there's a, uh, what I see in the Southeast is a wider variety of beers being brewed. Um, you know, people are brewing the hazy IPAs and people are brewing West Coast IPAs or, you know, what, what some people in this area call tropical IPAs, uh, meaning, <laughs> meaning kind of a not as bitter West Coast IPA with more tropical hops kind of thing, which I enjoy tremendously. Um, yep. And uh, but, you know, and then you see breweries that are doing Belgian beers and doing very well. Or there's a couple of breweries in Atlanta that are just almost 100 percent lagers and traditional European lagers. And 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 they're very popular. So and I see that in Charleston, uh, Virginia Beach is, um, you know, in the Norfolk area, the Hampton Roads area in Virginia. There are a lot of smaller breweries there that are doing some really neat things. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's not just, you know, one thing or another. It's it's a little bit of everything. And I I enjoy that. Yeah, I'm really a big fan of uh, Yoren and Sean over at uh at halfway crooks brewery i mean I think they're doing a lot of fun i like their i like their branding as well um and i'm i've enjoyed their beers i think they have a focus on belgian as well as lagers as well so yeah i that's that's definitely one of the breweries i was i was thinking about when we were talking about this they're they're number one they're great people uh yeah. and uh we've become good friends over the years but i mean you go to their place and you can get you know a czech pills or a czech dark lager or uh, Belgian pills or, you know, a German pills. And they, they do all these variations of, of European lagers and they do a great job at it and people love it. And yeah. it, it's interesting to me that they've been so popular and I don't mean that in a bad way. I think it's absolutely awesome. Um, and I, I love it, but I, you know, if I had proposed doing something like that six years ago, when we were starting new realm, uh, it it would have wouldn't have gone over well, right? <laughs> yeah, they they definitely have a, a, a niche there, and you know their and their their imagery, their branding. It's just uh, it really. I mean, look, as an older brewer, it speaks to me. You know, my if I have a younger millennial self somewhere inside me, it speaks to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I love their branding as well. I mean, just the hat that has logger written on it like five yeah. times. You know, it's it's like. Oh yeah, halfway crooks, you know, and you see those <laughs> you see those shirts and hats everywhere around Atlanta. And I just I love it. I think it's just great for beer. 
I was uh, back in Copenhagen uh, last week, uh, as well as Iceland and the Faroe Islands, and I happened to run in, to Jorin from Halfway Crooks in Copenhagen at a Mickler bar, and I just looked up and I heard Sean, and I go, Jorin, what are you doing here? <laughs> he, he, awesome. he, small world. He, it's very, very small world. Um, hey, so like, I just want to like shift gears a little bit, uh, just for a moment here. Um, I want to know, like, I was interested in, um, the origin story of brewers. Like we, a lot of us have like a really interesting background on how we got into this thing. What was your, how did you, what, how did you start? Well, it all started at UC Davis and, um, you know, I went to Davis as an undeclared science major biology, you know, kind of thinking pre pre vet, you know, something along those lines. And I realized I wasn't probably as competitive as I needed to be to go down that road, um, you know, in, into veterinary science or anything like that. <clears throat> and I knew I had heard that UC Davis had a winemaking program. And my freshman year, uh, I was living in the dorms. And I got, you know, as freshmen tend to get you know you get booted out of classes there's no room in the class for you so you have to scramble to find other classes to take to fill out your schedule and I remember the the RA in our dorm I was talking to him about it and he said look take intro to winemaking if you don't take this class at UC Davis you're an idiot and you need to take it and I took it and I was like after the second class or so, I was like, okay, I'm hooked. This is what, I'm, this is amazing. This is science. This is art. It's so interesting. It's so, you know, worldwide. And, and I just, I just loved it. And, and as I was going through, you know, and I started gearing my, my, um, uh, the classes I was taking in, in the early years so that I could make winemaking and uh, uh, fermentation science, my major, and I remember it was probably my sophomore year and I was taking a microbiology class and Michael Lewis came in and did a guest lecture. And I did not know that UC Davis had a brewing science program at that time. And I was like, oh, my God. And I was I love <laughs> beer. I I I started a real deep appreciation for beer when I was in high school and I had a friend that worked at a liquor store. And he would bring, you know, the owners of the liquor store, they said, don't steal from me, but you can take a six pack every week, um, <clears throat> you know, and and so he'd <laughs> grab a six pack of some beer from Denmark or France or Germany or whatever. And we try it. And I just fell in love with all the different flavors. And and so when I heard Michael Lewis talk about the brewing science program at Davis, I I kind of I did a semi pivot and I stuck with the winemaking stuff, but I also did the brewing science side and 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 I dropped all the viticulture farming stuff and just went brewing science. And that's kind of how it got started. Um that's that's and, extraordinary that you're at a young age that you had an appreciation for beer, you know, because when you're a teenager, you're not thinking at that level. You're I mean, I, yeah. It, it, you know, I look back on it and I said, that's where it started, you know. Um I, you know, in my senior year in high school, and we'd be sitting in a parking lot at a golf course drinking beer, you know, because we couldn't do it at home. <laughs> Your friends are drinking hams and you're like, does anybody want to try this Belgian triple I have here? Yeah, yeah. Or even some fast <laughs> ale, you know, come on. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So then just moving it forward a little bit after you graduated, you uh, you you got into winemaking, though, right? 
I did. Um, I graduated UC Davis in 1984. And um, at the time, you know, the only craft brewers in California uh, were Anchor in Sierra Nevada. And there, we were in the middle of a recession at the time, and none of the breweries were really hiring. <clears throat> and everybody that graduated in 84 in the fermentation science program had trouble landing a job. I ended up getting a uh, a seasonal job as a um, a chemist at a winery in Hollister, California, and that winery uh, was called Almaden, and they were a big outfit at the time. They had uh, four different wineries throughout California, and I was doing this work uh, during the harvest season at their red wine facility, and it was it was really cool. I loved it. Um, you know, there was a uh, they had a Guinness Book of World Records barrel warehouse there, um, <laughs> two acres of or maybe it was four of barrels stacked five high. Every drop of red wine that Almond had made went through a barrel at some oh, point. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was just incredible, you know, and Almond never really had a good name because they were known mostly for jug wines. But they were making a big push when I got there to really upping their game on the red wine front. And it was a lot of fun and uh, a great team. And I just love that job. Um, you know, and I, I started homebrewing uh, again, you know, I'd homebrewed a couple of times in college and it, it was pretty, pretty uninteresting or lousy <laughs> results, I should say. But, you know, I started homebrewing again when I was living in Hollister and there was a homebrew shop nearby uh, in a nearby town. And, um, you know, I started getting into it and brewing all sorts of different beers and having a lot of fun with it. And of course, you know, they winemakers always say it takes a lot of great beer to make yeah. great wine. And, you know, so I'd bring in my bottles of homebrew and we'd sit around after doing going through taste panel at the winery and drink beer. And it was it was great. Um, and, you know, I I think, you know, nothing ever stays the same. Right. And and Almaden got bought, uh, got purchased by another company. And the focus moved away from doing the real high-end wines. And, um, you know, and, and they ended up closing the red wine facility I worked at. They moved me over to another facility that had, up until that time, focused on white wines. Um, that was on the other south side of Hollister. Um, so it was still close, you know, and I still had a job, which was great. But, you know, that was when I started really thinking about, you know, doing the deep dive into beer. And... Um, Funny enough, you know, I, I, you know, we had a, a local paper, uh, the Hollister Freelance was the name of the paper. And uh, <laughs> there was an article in there one day about uh, a guy named Bill Millar starting a brewery in downtown Hollister. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is really cool. And, you know, so I, I grabbed my phone book, right, you know, and, and I flipped through it until I found his number and I called him. And I talked to him for a little bit and he said, hey, why don't you come on by and see the site in, in what we're doing? And it was on the main street in Hollister and it was a, a little place and he was putting in a 14 barrel system there and it was an old creamery. So, uh, you know, they've made ice cream there in the past. So it had tile floors and drains and the whole bit. And I walked in there and we chatted for at least two hours, maybe more. And at the end of the conversation, he goes, look, I don't have a brewer do you want the job? And I'm like, yeah, I, I would love to do this. And, and, you know, the funny thing was he had a full-time job at one of the tomato canneries uh, of which there are several in Hollister. And when that article got published in the paper and they found out he was opening this brewery, they fired him. Oh, and yeah. So all of a sudden now Bill's a full-time employee of the brewery 
and there wasn't room for me to be a full-time employee at the brewery, but I still wanted to be involved. And I, I worked there for four years um, as a second job. So I'd, I'd do my day job at the winery, which paid the bills. And then I'd come in and brew beer and do fun things with, with Bill um, at the brewery. Uh, and I did that for four years. I was brewing on weekends and mornings when I was working afternoons at the winery and evenings, I, you know, just whenever I had a, uh, enough time to get a brew through so it was a lot of fun yeah you were a moonlighting like a brian hunt type yes <laughs> well i'll tell exactly. you what that's that's a good uh place to take a break here so we're going to take a short break for this message and then come right back for more of this conversation with mitch Steele of new realm brewing stick around first he is a proud sponsor of the brewer to brewer podcast some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the first tea advantage Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. All About Beer is back. And we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com. Okay, welcome back. We are still talking with Mitch Steele here from New Realm Brewing Company. So, Mitch, uh, I think I talked to you about this uh, before the sort of the pre-interview, I'll call it. But I want to talk about Anheuser Busch. Your years there. How did that come about? You're you're at a little you're you're at a brew pub in Hollister, and then you work for one of the largest beer corporations in the world. How'd that happen? <laughs> well. Um... Yeah, you know, after four years of of doing what I was doing at San Andreas, I realized that that was never going to grow big enough to bring me on full time. Uh, I still had hoped that that would happen, but you know, I faced reality and and you know, honestly, I decided to just go dive in full on into brewing as a career, and I wanted to learn as much as I could. I I wanted to learn how to run a brewery. I wanted to learn how to you know, uh, how a, a really uh, um, technically advanced brewery operated and how people thought about beer. And so I, I, you know, got my resume updated and I, you know, I pulled out the old Brewer's Digest uh, brewery list um, directory and I circled a bunch of breweries that I thought were in areas that I might like to live and also that I thought would be a great experience for me or I like their beer or whatever. Um, you know, and it's it's probably important to note that Anheuser-Busch had a very strong relationship with UC Davis. And a lot of people that studied brewing science at UC Davis went on to great careers um, at Anheuser-Busch. 
And I think that helped get my foot in the door. But I, I had sent a bunch of resumes out and I, I got, um, you know, and I just sent them to the brewmaster that was listed in the directory, right? You know, so these guys were <laughs> old letters of me saying, hey, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about possibly coming to work for you. And I got a call from Anheuser-Busch in Fort Collins, Colorado. <clears throat> and I flew out there to interview. I had to go out there twice. Uh, the interview process at AB back then, I don't know if it still is, but back then it was brutal. I mean, it was just really long. You, you had to talk to about a dozen people. And then you if they liked you enough, they brought you back to go through this whole um, assessment uh, evaluation of your managerial skills and things like that. And, and so I went through all of that and uh, they ended up offering me the job. And so I picked up everything and, and moved to Fort Collins, Colorado, which was huge for me. I had never really spent much time outside of California. Um, I was 30 years old. I was ready, though, to try something different, try a new spot. Um, and so I went to Colorado and I was hired there as a supervisor, a brewing supervisor. And I was working rotating shifts. And, um, you know, there was a lot about that job I absolutely loved. And, you know, my goal in doing this, because I still wanted to be a craft brewer, that was my goal. That was what was in my head, cemented in my psyche. And so I said, I'm going to give this five years. And I'm going to soak up as much as I can, learn as much as I can. I had all these notebooks that I was writing stuff down in and everything. And, and my intent was after five years or so that I would start trying to get back into craft beer. And <clears throat> five years turned into 14. Um, and I got promoted several times and moved around uh, a bit and, um, you know, had a really good career at Anheuser-Busch. I got to do some things at Anheuser-Busch that nobody's gotten to do. Um, you know, and then after I left Fort Collins, um, I I got put into the new products group at Anheuser-Busch in St. Louis, and I was uh, replacing um, a person named named Danny Kahn, who uh, eventually went on to work at Sierra Nevada for several years and is now distilling. But Danny was a great guy. He kind of took me under his wing, um, as did a lot of people. And, you know, trying to learn the politics and navigating corporate culture, which was very eye-opening yeah, for me. But. Yeah. What What was that like? I mean, and, and, and going back just a little bit there, I yeah. mean, look, you're brewing at like a really small brewery in Hollister. What was your first day like walking into this ginormous <laughs> factory? Like what, you know, you, your head must have exploded. Yeah, it, yeah, it did. I mean, there were in, in a lot of different levels. I mean, there were stainless everywhere. The place was immaculately clean. Um, you know, working in the winery, I thought I I had some experience working in pretty big operations, and I did, but none of that really prepared me for what I walked into there in Fort Collins. And that brewery was, I want to say, it was five years old when I came there. Oh uh, wow, so it was still new, you know, and it was still shiny and um you know just uh, amazing um you know and then the other thing is i had to learn the language right and i'm i'm sitting there i remember this clearly i was sitting in um in the control room uh with one of the supervisors who had been there for a while and he started talking about fossing beer he goes yeah now we got to foss this so we're going to put it on the schedule the next shift we'll foss it over to the lager seller and i'm like wait a minute what does foss mean <laughs> i had no <laughs> idea like Right. <laughs> and there were there were a lot of those German brewing terms that I learned very quickly in my time at Anheuser-Busch. So it was it was overwhelming, but it was exciting. And, you know, the people there, uh, by and large, were 
amazing. They were wonderful people. They really wanted everybody to do well. Um, they recognized good performance. I really enjoyed my time in Fort Collins. It was awesome. Well, it's also a different company now than it was back then. It's very yep. different companies before the big sale. But um, but then you stepped in sort of the innovation area. And so what 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 you were like, what what happened there? Well, so it was it was a two person team uh, and we were in charge of executing what the marketing department wanted Anheuser-Busch to come out with on the innovation side. And this was right at the time when um, AB came out with beers like Elk Mountain Amber Ale and Elk Mountain Red and Red Wolf, Red Lager and things like that. And obviously, you know, my four years of being involved in craft beer and, and being part of the craft brewing community played a role in me getting this job, um, you know, and, you know, again, there was a lot of mentorship, you know, when I first got to St. Louis, because I remember one person telling me, look, you're in corporate brewing, it can be really tricky. He said, your goal should be not to get yourself in trouble with any of the brewmasters. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. And and sure enough, I did get myself in trouble a couple of times and it was, it was hard, but. Uh, what did um, you do? How did you get in trouble at Anheuser-Busch? Did you, were you out one day not drinking Budweiser or, and they saw you? I mean, how do you get in trouble? <laughs> no, I was like the one person at Anheuser-Busch could, that could drink other beers, you know, because okay. of our job but oh, um, <laughs> um no it was actually after i was in new products um and 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 then i was working for one of the brewing directors who was in charge of six of the 12 breweries and we were put on this project i was working with a uh, a gentleman named alistair pringle who who has been around for a while and a lot of people in the industry know him because he's he's brilliant uh but we were working on a project to figure out how to measure uh Wort oxygen, you know, aeration and measure DO and wort and then measure DO in different parts of the process. And we were out um, evaluating uh, brew house operations in a lot of breweries and doing these kind of audit things as well as checking uh, dissolved oxygen. And <clears throat> I remember the brewmaster at one brewery had had to leave uh, the last day we were there. And so we kind of, you know, we're, we're supposed to fill out a report after these trips, right? And so we gave the report to somebody else who apparently did not tell the brewmaster what we had found. And then we got back to St. Louis and we told the VP of, Bre of Brewing, whose name was Doug Mullman, what we had found. And he immediately... I mean, this was kind of, a, kind of an asshole move, but he immediately, while I'm in the room, called the brewmaster and and oh started <laughs> and i'm sitting there and i'm just i'm shrinking right i'm just kind of withering up and wanting to just go away and hide and and is you know i walked out of doug's office after that phone call and i heard my phone ringing as soon as i started down the hallway to my office and i'm like oh crap this is gonna be ugly and yeah he he tore me a new one it was it was and we had been really good friends you know we had a really great relationship and it it soured there and i just felt horrible but you know i tried to do what i had to do there and it was just one wow. of those things where you know it was a good lesson right you know yeah <laughs> that's a good story under the bus but you know sometimes you throw people under the bus inadvertently and you pay for it there you go. Sometimes you're doing your job and you don't know you're throwing somebody under the bus. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, so going back to the innovation, so it's <laughs> it's two people, which strikes me as is interesting. Huge company, two people who are in charge of coming up with innovation. 
I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of support like being fed into you, but uh, yeah. what, and what, what did you do? Just go like wake up one morning and turn to the, to the other brewer and go, let's, uh, let's brew a Saison today. How did this work? Well, there was a little bit of that, but um, you know, the uh, uh, Anheuser-Busch had a 10 barrel pilot system and we were given one slot a week to brew a batch of beer. And, um, you know, we had marching orders from the marketing department and that was how Anheuser-Busch worked. You know, anything that was a brewer's idea never even got off the ground. Uh, but if you were a marketing, you know, and you were running, you know, say you're running the uh, specialty brewing group on the marketing side, which was what it was called back then, you fed the brewers the ideas and then the brewers executed it. And so we would you know, if somebody said, hey, we want a, a, a beer that's kind of like this or, you know, has this alcohol content or whatever the case was. And usually it was pretty loosey goosey, the direction we got, um, unless it was to specifically brew something like somebody else was already doing. We would come up with a recipe. We'd review it with uh, a person who uh, managed uh, the pilot brewery. And he was an old German brewmaster, and I loved the guy. His name was Al Linnebach. And, you know, I thought walking in, you know, I'm kind of intimidated by, by a German brewmaster. And he he was one of the most jolly people and, and curious brewers that I've ever met. And he really helped us, you know. Um, and he was, <clears throat> you know, there were a lot of tricks he taught us, old German brewing tricks, as we tried to figure some things out. And, um but he was always interested in what we were feeding his way. And then his team would brew the beer and then we'd taste it together. And then if we thought it was worthy, we'd send it up the ladder. And, you know, one of the interesting dynamics of, of this whole process um, is it had to, the beer had to go through the corporate taste panel, which they called the 220 panel. I uh, had to be approved there, had to also go up through um, eventually to August Bush the third, and oh, he wow. had to give the thumbs up. And so that created that uh, logistically, that was a nightmare trying to get these beers out the door at the time people wanted them to and waiting for approvals or having to go back to the drawing board. And I've got all sorts of stories about that kind of stuff, but I, you know, it was, um, it was frustrating, but, um, you know, in general, we did, we were successful. And the nice thing about this job, though, was that there were some open slots on that pilot brewing schedule. And if we didn't use them, we lost them. And so we, you know, I actually went to the VP of brewing at the time and said, look, you know, if we're going to dive into craft, you know, microbrewing, as they called it back then, <clears throat> we should be brewing examples of these styles that are out there that we're not talking about yet. And, and he gave me the thumbs up. And so we, we had this project where, you know, back then it was Michael Jackson's book and Fred Eckhart's book. And that was pretty much it as far as beer styles, but we were, we were trying to brew one of everything just so that we had it in our back pocket. And, um, and so we got to brew some really neat beers. How did you come up with the recipes for that? Was it just like, you know, tapping into your homebrew ways or looking at other examples or, I mean, you know, cause there wasn't probably a lot of information out there about brewing those styles. You know, that was when the internet really was just getting going. I did a lot mm -hmm. of internet research. Um, you know, like I said, I had the Michael Jackson books. I had the Fred Eckhart books. Um, you know, there were some other brewing texts that were out there that kind of addressed this. Um, you know, so I, I, did a, you know, it, and it's funny, I, I tell this to people every once in a while, I learned more about beer styles and brewing different beer styles at Anheuser-Busch than I did anywhere else in my career, which I always thought was somewhat ironic. And, um, but yeah, I mean, some of the things we did didn't work and some of them really did. I remember 
one of the the my favorite things that we did in that uh, in that time is we did an IPA and we had launched some of these beers in Boston and I'd gone out to Boston and and Harpoon IPA was everywhere and you know coming from the Bay Area I certainly had had a number of IPAs in the Bay Area before I left uh, to join AB so I was an IPA fan. And so we tried to make an IPA and it was 65 IBUs and it had Columbus and Cascade hops in it. And it was absolutely marvelous. And somehow I got people convinced that we should serve this beer at the Great American Beer Festival. And, <laughs> and so we have this lineup of, you know, Budweiser and Bud Light and all this other stuff. And then we have this IPA and, and their people were lined up for this beer. It was crazy. What year was that? What year was that? I want to say it was 97 or 98. I think um, I was, I think I had that beer. I was one of those people that lined up. I remember that being shocked at that, at the booth, uh, Anheuser-Busch booth and being, and then seeing this IPA there, it was a head scratcher. Yeah. I, I, I was so thrilled. I mean, I was like, oh my God, this means we're going to be able to go back to St. Louis and brew an IPA as part of the special <laughs> specialty brewing group. And, and, you know, that didn't happen. Um, and, you know, I went I went into a meeting and I started saying, hey, what are we going to do about this IPA? And the response, I, I just got crickets. Right. You know, and and finally somebody said, we're not going to do anything with this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? This beer was a huge hit. This could give us instant credibility because that was a lot of what we were doing was trying to get Anheuser-Busch credibility because craft brewers uh, at the time really didn't respect Anheuser-Busch by and large. I mean, there were people that understood it and and did, but, you know, and then the, the whole marketing side and sales side of things with Anheuser-Busch created a lot of bad, bad will, but I'm I'm sitting in this meeting and I'm I'm just confused as all get out. I'm like, why are we not talking about this beer? And finally, one person told me, and and he said, you know, we're not trying to grow this category. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, we don't want this category to keep growing. We're in it because we need to compete and be competitive, but we don't want to be a a a company that actually grows this category and i was so deflated i was so bummed. wow that was like that was like the mask came off and you heard the reality of the whole situation yeah no and, and, yeah two and a half years of doing this and nobody had ever said that to me and i was wow. like i'm like okay then why are we doing this why are we doing this at all you know why are we why are we busting our humps trying to make all these different beer styles for you and give you all sorts of options if you're not really interested and you know, and it was about that at the same time that we started doing uh, beers like Tequiza and flavored beers and things like that. And I really wasn't interested. And <clears throat> I think Doug Molman knew I was getting really, really frustrated with everything about it. And he came into my office and I like Doug Molman a lot. Um, you know, I thought he was a really smart guy and he knew a hell of a lot about brewing. And, you know, he came into my office and said, hey, let's talk about your career. I said, okay. And he goes, you've been doing new products for three years now. Is this one what you want to keep doing? You're doing a good job. You know, everybody likes you. Everybody likes what you're doing, but is this what you want to do? And I thought about it for a few minutes and I said, look, if, if the direction for new products is going to go down the road of things like Tequiza and orange flavored Bud Light and things like that, I'd rather make Budweiser in one of the breweries. 
And and so I transitioned out of new products and they they put me in this role uh, working for one of the directors of brewing, which I did for six months. And that was just to get me back into the the world of Budweiser brewing. Um, and then I I went off in into a couple of different breweries after that and was an assistant brewmaster in, in those two breweries. That's awesome. And didn't you come up with uh, back of in the innovation part? Uh, didn't you come up with Pacific Ridge? Wasn't that your baby? <laughs> <laughs> the pale ale unfortunately Nevada. Yes. yeah yeah that, that, you know that was I, I will tell you that that was another thing that really really made me want to get out of it was this whole idea that we had to clone somebody else's beer to be competitive um i love sierra nevada pale ale i still do yeah. i drink it all the time um i i was really conflicted with that whole project and i thought it was bordering unethical and you know and and when i started saying stuff about it i i you know pretty quickly got told to zip my lips but you know i you know so i went into that whole project saying let's just brew the best freaking pale ale we can brew and Sierra Nevada is a great inspiration, a great model for that. But I, I wasn't looking to copy Sierra Nevada. Um, <clears throat> but in the end, that's where the direction went with that beer. And um, I, you know, I look back at that and, and you know, Ken Grossman, uh, at one of the CBCs a few years ago, we were sitting down with Steve Wagner and having lunch. And he said, hey, let's talk about Pacific Ridge. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> and, and, and you know what? I, I apologize to him because I, I, you know, I've never wanted to be a brewery that a brewer that copied anybody else's beer. Um, you know, I learned a heck of a lot about brewing pale ales through that whole process, which was great, but there were some other projects like that, that I just really felt very uneasy about. And I know that's kind of corporate culture, but I didn't want any part of it. What was interesting about that, it wasn't just the beer with Pacific Ridge. It was the shape of the bottle. It was oh, almost, yeah. it was, <laughs> but you know, I will, I, you know, in your defense though, it was a, it was a good beer. I mean, I was kind of shocked when I first had it. I was like, wow, this is a damn good pale ale. So it wasn't exactly like Sierra Nevada. It had a couple of little nuances to it, but it was a good beer. Yeah, it was, it was maltier and fuller bodied than Sierra Nevada, I think. And and it wasn't quite as bitter, but I thought it had good, good cascade hop character. And it did. I, I thought it was a nice beer, but man, those kind of projects were really, I mean, you know, for me, it, it just didn't sit well. And I was really struggling, you know, with those kind of things. And, and, you know, and that, that was part of me saying, I'd rather just go make Budweiser than do this. That's interesting. Um, kind of like one more question on the AB front that I just thought of, like, did you ever meet the big man? And what was that like? August Bush? What was that like? <laughs> Several times. Uh, it, nobody ever wanted to, but you know, it, 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 honestly, Sean, he was the most intimidating man I ever met in my life. Um, <laughs> people were scared to death of the guy and he, you know, he kind of managed by fear you know, because if you did something wrong, he'd fire you in an instant, you know, kind of like, you know, Donald Trump on The Apprentice kind of thing. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and I, re I remember one time we were doing these events where we were inviting beer writers out to some of our uh, facilities, whether it was a brewery of the hop farm in Idaho or the malting facility in, in Idaho as well. And we'd extend these invitations to beer writers to kind of just 
tell them what we were all about. And they were fun projects. And I got to meet a lot of really great people, uh, many of whom still remain friends uh, that were beer writers at the time. And um, I remember, you know, we were preparing for this uh, event in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which was going to include a tour of the Elk Mountain Hop Farms in northern Idaho. And I got this phone call and it was Teresa, Mr. Bush's assistant. And she said, Mr. Bush would like to see you right away. And I'm like, oh, shit. what the hell did I do? You know, and I, I mean, honestly, the pit in my stomach was about as big as I've ever felt. And, you know, so I'm I'm walking, you know, the walk of death to his office. And I, I, I'm like scared to death. Right. And I, I get there and the marketing guy that I worked with really closely, Bob Francis Kelly, he was sitting in a chair there and he looked at me and he kind of gave me this helpless look. I'm like, oh, shit, what did we do? And he called me in and he said, I want to talk about this writer's event you're going to do at Elk Mountain Farms. And he wanted to know all the beers we were going to serve these writers, how we were going to talk about the hops um, and all this, all these things. And he went through it in great detail and he vetoed a bunch of what we had planned to serve. He said, you can't serve that beer with Czech Sots hops. We canceled our Sots contract. We're not using those hops. What are you going to say? And I said, well, nobody's going to know we're not using that hop <laughs> you know, <laughs> thing to say, right? He said, absolutely not. You are not serving that beer. And um, and then at the end of that meeting, you know, you just feel like you're taking a beating, right? And at the end of that meeting, he says, I think I'm going to join you th- for the hop farm tour. And I'm like, oh, oh my sh- God. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and, and he did. And he didn't, you know, he didn't let us tell any of the writers that he was going to be there. He just said, hey, welcome to Elk Mountain. I'm August Bush, you know. <laughs> it's like, and and some people were like, oh, uh, yeah, you know, they didn't want to talk to him. And then other people were fine with it. But it was I, you know, every conversation with him was scary as hell. And, um, you know, I had probably, you know, six to 10 conversations, one-on-one conversations with him in the 14 years I was with Anheuser-Busch. I remember one time, uh, you know, I had moved on to the Merrimack, New Hampshire brewery and I was running the brew house and AB at the time was considering moving away from whole hops and they were exploring extracts and pellets. And he sat a bunch of the brewing managers in a room and we sat in a circle around him and he pointed to each one of us and said, what do you think is the right way to go? And everybody's saying extracts. And I'm like thinking to myself, fuck no, but, you know, that's not the, sorry for the language, uh, that's right. but that's not the way to go. <laughs> and, and, and so he got to me and I said, no, I think pellets are the way to go. They're easier to weigh out. They're easier to add. They're not as messy. Um, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and I said, I, my vote would be for pellets. And he looked at me and he said, okay. And he said, I think that's where we're leaning anyway. And I'm like, oh, phew. <laughs> and everybody else in the room in that circle is looking at you like, damn, you yeah. and Mitch. Yep. We're all going to lose our jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it was it, every, every conversation. With, and there were times we were working on one project and the beer came out horribly. And um, the VP of brewing called uh this was um actually it was gerhard kramer who had since uh kind of moved into more of a uh, a different role and doug molman was the vp of brewing but gerhard kramer who i liked a lot who ran ab for many many years called mr bush and said this is the worst beer i've ever had in my life and 
next thing I know, I'm on the phone and I'm holding it, you know, you can't see this, but, you know, holding my, the phone a foot from my ear and he's just screaming at me. And he said, you get on a goddamn plane and you go to this brewery and you fix this freaking problem. We are not releasing this beer. And I'm like, and I hung up the phone and I'm just kind of like, I just was shell shocked. Right. And, and uh, yeah, it was, what, uh, it what could was be the beer. Down. What was the beer? It was a Mexican lager called Azteca. And the whole marketing plan behind this beer was to brew this beer in this little tiny brewery in uh, um, where was it? It was in Mexico. Um, uh, not Tijuana. Um, shoot. What's uh, it's the town that's just east of Tijuana, um, on the, on the border with California. And, um, you know, so I was flying down there. They had one guy brewing the beer who was a craft brewer, not a lager brewer. And he was a good guy. I, he, we got along great, but he, he really didn't know what he was doing and the marketing people kept telling me to stay out of his brewing and so you know it's stupid me i listened right and i said well okay hands off i you know i'll just come in and make sure everything's going okay and i'm tasting the beer going okay th there's there's a problem here and and after this all happened you know doug Doug Molman came into my office and said look i know you were getting a lot of pushback from marketing about diving into this beer he said, the one thing you could have done better in this whole process was raise the flags to us and tell us that this project was not going the way people intended it to because of this. And then the next thing I know, we're on a whole team and I are going down to Mexico and trying to fix this beer. It was brutal. <laughs> it was well, if you, need, if you need a help with Mexican lager, it could probably help you out a little bit. Yeah, you just <laughs> won a medal, didn't you? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, man, those are great stories of Anheuser-Busch. I mean, honestly, uh, Mitch, as you're telling these stories, you need to write a book and it'd just be Mitch Steele, the AB years, and people <laughs> would love it. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready to do a tell-all book. I know you and I have actually chatted about it before, and I, you know, I, I'm thinking about it, but uh, I don't, you know, writing a book's hard. I don't you know, I don't know if I have another one in me, but maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember you telling me stories about the uh, IPA book. It was, it was not as easy as everybody thinks it was. <laughs> no, it was hard. I, you know, once you get to editing, that's where it really gets to be a slog. And yeah. you know, the the research part's great. The writing's not too bad, but yeah, once you actually start trying to make it presentable as a as a publication, then it becomes kind of difficult. Well, so you're an author, you're a brewer, uh, but you also have this other interest. You like to play music. You're a proficient guitar player. So what's the story behind that? You, you own a bunch of guitars. Yeah, I do. I'm I'm a hobby player at best, but, you know, there were times when I was playing in some pretty good bands. And, um, you know, I, I played in three different bands while I was living in, in the San Diego area. Um, but, you know, it all started uh, one of my actually my best friend in college, and he was the best man at my wedding, was a guitar player in college. And I always I, you know, I had studied a little bit of piano when I was a kid, so I knew a bit about music theory and, and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, he would he would get together with some other folks in the dorm and play music. And I'm like, this is really cool. And but after we graduated, he was living up on the peninsula uh, south of San Francisco, and I'd go visit him when I was in Hollister and we'd hang out and drink beer and, and have fun. And he pulled out this guitar one day and he said, you know, I think I'm going to sell this guitar. 
And immediately I said, how much do you want for it? And he sold me this Gibson Les Paul copy. It was a Japanese made Gibson Les Paul. He sold it to me for 75 bucks. And so <laughs> I, I go home and I've got this guitar and I'm like immediately going, okay, now I'm going to learn how to play this thing. And I had, a, I had a whole bunch of books that were piano books, but they also had guitar chords on them. Um, you know, so like, like Beatles chord books and things like that. And so I just started learning how to strum chords and um, <clears throat> pretty much self-taught for a long time. We had a we had a little band with my best friend uh, that played at the uh, at San Andreas Brewery in Hollister when I was working there. We played there every once in a while. We were called Liquid Courage, which I thought was a <laughs> nice name. Uh, but, you know, we had the rotating drummer. It really wasn't anything serious or anything like that. It was just having us having fun and drinking some beers and people laughing at us and, you know, having a good time. Um, uh, but, you know, when I when I moved to, you know, and I continued playing and I started collecting guitars when I lived in St. Louis and I started, you know, I bought a Rickenbacker. I bought a, um, uh, a Fender Stratocaster and I bought a Rickenbacker 360 because I loved R.E.M. And I, you know, I wanted to be yes. able to kind of do that sound and, um, <clears throat> you know, and it kind of grew into this thing. Um, when I lived in New Hampshire, I think that was probably the time that I got into a, what I would consider a real band dynamic. And and it was a group of four of us that got together, you know, uh, basement legends kind of thing. We played in this guy's basement, but we had the full, you know, two guitars, bass and drums. And, uh, you know, a few people in the band sang and we, we just learned songs. It was very casual. You know, we just say, why don't we try to learn this song? And then we'd start playing it. But we we got pretty tight. And that was really how I learned to play in a band, you know, and and watch the sound dynamics and and the mix and all that kind of fun stuff. And I also improved my skills quite a bit because I was really uh, woodshedding trying to learn these songs that we wanted to play. Um, <clears throat> when I left New Hampshire, I joined a band in in uh, based out of San Marcos, California, which is just down the road from the Stone Brewery. And that was a band called Craig's Band. And it was a bunch of guys. I was probably, when we started, I was the youngest guy in the band. Uh, but it was all full-on classic rock, 60s, 70s, Cream, That's Rolling great. Stones, you know, all that kind of stuff. And and again, you know, I had to learn all of these songs and learn how to play them in a band. Um, I think and it, it was an awesome experience. They were great people. They, they played out. So I was playing out you know, at, at bars and events and things like that. Um, we didn't play out a lot, maybe once a month, but we did, um, you know, and seriously got got better through that process. And I think one of the funnest bands I was in uh, was the Stone House Band, which I started with Jeremy Monier. I remember uh, that. <laughs> uh, uh, we were called the Populators, which I thought was hilarious. Um <laughs> And, you know, we, we, it was pretty much an open invitation for anybody on the team that wanted to take part in it. So people came in, came and left, but, you know, the core of the band stayed the same throughout the, you know, five or six years that we did it. Um, and that was a fun band because, you know, Stone is a lot of very, uh, a lot of very different people. You know, Greg really didn't want people that fit a certain mold. He hired people if they were interesting and passionate about craft beer, which I I love that at Stone. Um, you know, so when we were trying to play music together, we were playing stuff like Johnny Cash. Uh, we were playing The Doors, Pink Floyd. We were playing, 
uh, the Pixies, we were playing Tame Impala. Wow. We were all over the place, right? And I had to learn all these, you know, all alternative rock songs that I hadn't even listened to. And I'm like trying to play them. And it, it, it was a, a real challenge, but it was tremendous fun. Really, really a lot of fun. And, you know, I buy guitars, you know, probably about one guitar a year. When I published the book, I used the royalties. Uh, when I was making decent royalties, I'd, I'd use a portion of the royalties to buy a guitar. We we had a relationship with uh, Taylor Guitars at Stone, a good relationship. Oh, wow. and, and so we, you know, we we trade tours and things like that. And and um, they started inviting me to their friends and family sale that they had in every December. Uh, and I bought two guitar, two Taylor guitars then. Um, you know, so I've got a nice collection now. I've probably got, you know, 15, 16 guitars wow. or so. Wow. Do you, are you playing, do you have a band or hopes of having a band out there in Atlanta? Yeah. You know, we moved to Atlanta six months before COVID. And so that kind of put the brakes on everything. And yeah. I really haven't gotten back into it. Um, I would love to play with people. I'm not really interested in playing out like gigging. Um, yeah. You know, I just, I, to me, a great way to spend some time would be to get a few people in a room and just play some music and, and drink a couple beers. That's like my jam right now, not to make a pun or, uh, you know, but uh, I, it's, it's like, I would love to get back into doing that. I just haven't yet. And I think that's a great place to end. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. It's been a Thank real you. treat. And uh, fun. Mitch, that went by fast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mitch will be back on the next episode of the Brewer to Brewer podcast as the host having a conversation with a brewer of his choosing, which will air in the next two weeks. So make sure you tune in for that. And be sure and visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. And to support journalism in the beer space, go check out patreon.com backslash allaboutbeer and become a supporter of this great platform for all things beer. I'm Sean O'Sullivan. Thank you for listening to the Brewer to Brewer podcast. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com.